0: Hello, and welcome to the Oxfam podcast and this episode of Book Banter, the show where we review the latest literature related to our work. In this episode, we'll be reviewing the book The Rise of Meritocracy by British sociologist and politician Michael Dunlop Young. First published back in 1958, it's a story of a future society in the United Kingdom where social class is now based on merit and intelligence. So with me, I have Angela Picciariello from the research team in Oxfam Great Britain, as well as Susanna Griffiths from the Oxfam Policy and Practice team. So, Angela, let's start with you. Could you give us an overview of the book?
1: Yeah, sure. So the book, The Rise of the Meritocracy, was uh, published by uh, the British sociologist and politician Michael Young in 1958. And it was pretty peculiar in the sense that it described a dystopian future for the United Kingdom between the years 1870 and 2033. It described how the educational system in the UK and the society changed accordingly, and how it passed from a society based on hereditary privilege, or what was called a caste society, to a society where rewards and privileges were based on intelligence, talent, and merit, which is what the author calls a class society.
0: Great. Thanks, Angela. So could you tell us a little bit more about why you wanted to read this
1: book? I was curious about this book mostly because of its topic, which is, yeah, in the title, The Meritocracy, because mm, working in, you know, in the inequality field on socioeconomic inequality, you know that one of the main arguments in favor of a high level of inequality is that inequality is fair because people at the top or the elite are there because they deserve it, because they uh, are more talented than the others, or because they just put more effort or work harder than other people. And this system is efficient because it gets us the best people at the top doing the best job for our nation and uh, bringing about economic development. Plus, I think meritocracy is something that we are all born with. I mean, it's something that we learned since an early age. We learn that we have to perform, that we have to uh, be rewarded according to our merit. So I was really curious to see whether the author could basically deconstruct some of these concepts, debunk some of the common myths that still support inequality. And uh, this, of course, could have a lot of implication for the work that we do in Oxfam, for example, about inequality.
0: Okay, thanks. And Susanna, let's bring you in. What about you? Why did you decide to read this book? Well, I decided to read this book because I think we're living in
2: really interesting, turbulent times. And I think in Oxfam, we're all asking a lot of questions about what we would vision as a better world, how society is structured, how it should be structured, why, what we value... And I was also quite sold on the idea that it talked a lot about education, because that's an issue that um, I've been very involved with in my time at Oxfam. Kind of what knowledge and skills are valued in society and how that plays out. So one of the key themes that I took away from the book was that it really challenged me on what kind of things we should value in society and as Oxfam in our mission to overcome poverty and suffering where should we focus. Uh, I think there is a temptation to focus on things like GDP growth but I think that there is a risk that that ultimately leads to a winner takes all mentality um, and a lot of people are left behind. I think The book raises a lot of interesting questions about whether education um, serves an instrumentalist purpose and gives people the skills that they need to um, perform effectively in um, a capitalist economic system, or perhaps the purpose of education should be more about improving the society in which we live. I think the author raises a really important point about the why, not the how.
1: My takeaways were probably slightly different, but um, along the same lines. So I... uh liked a lot uh going back to the you know debunking the inequality myths or the meritocracy mix how he actually portrayed the change to meritocracy. So, you know, going from an hereditary based uh, privileged system to a meritocratic one. And he expi- explicitly says in uh, one part of the book that, uh, you know, I cite, the ceaseless uh, change that reproduces the past while transforming it. So he already hints at the fact that, you know, we have tried to make the system more fair and more meritocratic, but probably In reality, we're not really changing that much. We are still retaining a lot of privilege based on a certain set of principles. And in fact, he questions very hard at some point the value of the tests that the educational system started to use to categorize people, to distinguish those that were more talented from those that were less talented. And he says, you know, what were we really testing, actually? So at that point, he says, you know, they could, the tests, they could have been called the idiocy tests for all the difference it would have made. Because in reality, what they were testing was just the qualities needed to benefit from a higher education. It questions a lot what is intelligence and what are we testing when we are trying to say whether someone is more intelligent or more talented than someone else. And then, you know, it shows, it goes on to show the consequences of implementing this meritocratic system. I um, picked mostly two main consequences. One is segregation, you know, in order to have your meritocratic system, you you need to uh, separate kids that are more able from the ones that are less able. And then the other one is the frustration of those left behind. So you have the frustration of the people from the lower classes that are not talented enough, so they cannot jump to the higher classes. You have the frustration of the ones that are from higher classes by family, but they're not talented enough. So they go through a process of so-called downward mobility. And then this is the most interesting part. The story that it tells is actually circular, because in the end, all this meritocratic system is questioned from inside, you know, people start feeling, oh, why should we go through all this hassle of tests? Why should we do that? Now we've already got through some decades of meritocracy, the best people at the top. So probably we can just go back to the hereditary system where now the best people are already there and just keep it going, you know, and this will work. So in the end, I think it shows very well all the disillusionment of a big concept, such as the meritocracy.
0: Angela, does this book influence the way you think about inequality, and does it have uh, any impact on the way you go about your research in that area?
1: One idea that the book is focused on is actually equality of opportunity, which is another big principle that somehow is used to support a certain level of inequality. So there is the idea that, you know, as long as we have enough equality of opportunity for everyone, then it's fine to accept whatever level of inequality is resulting from that, because that will only be due to people's talent and effort. But then the book shows very well that this equality of opportunity is itself a quite complex concept and is itself a concept that could be pretty much used to create segregation and to foster higher level of inequality. So I think it can actually be very useful for Oxfam work to challenge a bit the concept around the quality of opportunity and the quality of outcomes.
2: I think it's really interesting how the author focuses a lot on the difference between taxing wealth and taxing income and I know that that's an area of debate that Oxfam has also focused on. We see a widening uh, inequality and a sort of gross gap between the rich and the poor and in his book he talks about a point where people are even paid the same, they're given the same basic income but the difference they experience is because uh, some people's work is more valued than others so they get all kinds of perks and benefits and holidays paid for by their employers because ultimately what they deliver helps the machine much, much better than the people at the bottom who can work as
1: hard as they like, but really their work doesn't have much impact. There is a strong point, I feel, throughout the book about how the meritocratic system actually has achieved to take the best, the most talented people from the lower classes, from the working classes, and basically transfer them to the elite through the educational system. So these people have been taken away from the class struggle, and they've been diverted into what the author calls self-advancement. And in reality, I mean, they have basically been co-opted to the new elite, and the working class has been left with no leaders, or at least no very talented leaders, which used to have, which has made its position even uh, weaker than it used to be, and I thought that was a very interesting concept actually.
0: Okay, great, thanks. I want to hear a little bit more about some themes in the book. So, what about gender? Does the book focus on anything to do with gender justice, women's rights, and um, was there any any interesting? Uh, takes on that?
2: I was really interested when I was reading it that there seemed to be a real absence of women. They were kind of mentioned occasionally as a sideline and uh, quite often men were used to talk about everyone, which as I was reading it was thinking, is this a reflection of the times or is it a deliberate um, device he's using? And then Towards the end of the book, he mentioned something called the Chelsea Manifesto, uh, which was written in 2009, um, mainly by women. And it was quite interesting because basically it said a lot of things that I agreed with, but was very scathing about it, obviously, because it's satire. And I found that quite interesting. I felt perhaps that was his opportunity to sneak in a little bit of what he felt was a representation of more diverse stories, ideas, opinions. I know that Michael Young was a big fan of a lot of. Things that are traditionally seen as female, like networks and kinships and family. It's something that I feel quite strongly about, that neoliberalism has failed a lot of women. Um, Later in the book, he talks about people, particularly working mothers, kind of getting a raw deal about unpaid care work being of very low value, people basically worrying about their value in society if they take time out to be mothers, having to get straight back in again. Um, I think that speaks a lot to a lot of people's experiences in modern times.
1: And at that point it has an interesting point also about how gender interacts with meritocracy and class because it says okay there was a possibility of having someone looking after your children but then women with a good education didn't want someone with a lower education or with a lower iq to look after their children and raise their children so in the end they wanted to be the one to do it and that made them, you know, cause them out of the job market. And I thought that was really interesting. You know, it was the point of intersection about a lot of different struggles, which we still see nowadays very much.
0: Great. Thanks both. What about um, technology? Does the book uh, talk about how technology impacts on social class and how it is used to either hinder or enhance it?
1: There is a theme that goes throughout the book, and it's about how technological development actually aids the meritocracy. So in the beginning, the author says kids couldn't be separated from an early age, because it was not possible to understand who was talented and who was was not. So they had to be in comprehensive schools where basically no segregation was enforced until they were, I don't know, 11 was the age. And then even afterwards, in their uh, later years, they could retake tests if they thought that the test results were not corresponding to their ability. So the system was still, quite insecure in their way of categorizing people into boxes. But then the tests became better and better, and they were able to lower the age at which kids could be separated to five and then to three. And then it says, you know, at this point, we could basically know how talented a kid is even before uh, he or she is born. So basically (laughs) just based on the IQ of their parents. Of course, in this sarcastic approach that he has, he talks about this as a very positive outcome. So he says, yeah, it's uh, very good. It's very objective, and it makes the system so efficient. But then this really felt so prophetic, you know, a system where nowadays AI and a lot of other technological developments are actually allowing us to categorize people in a way which many people believe to be objective and fair.
2: I do agree with what you were saying. But also, I I think there were kind of hints at um, a kind of future world where unskilled people basically got written out of their jobs by machines, which is a lot of the uh, concerns people have having at the moment about um, AI. And ultimately, we're going to have more people than jobs needed for them to do and what does that mean for people's self-esteem if they don't have, have a job. It kind of goes back to that original argument I raised about what we value in society and basically you're
0: only as good as your job and um, what you're contributing to the economy. Okay, great, thanks. So we've talked about what you liked in the book and what you found interesting and the themes that uh, you thought were worth exploring. But what about, uh, was there anything in the book that you wish was done differently? Uh, Was there anything missing that you thought should have been in the book? Tell us a little bit more about what you wish there was more of.
1: The book didn't feel super propositional, and it felt that it was opening more questions than it was answering. Although I believe probably that was the, you know, the purpose that the author had in mind for that book. But Mm, Yeah, you don't really find many answers there. Although, I have to say, I slightly changed my mind on that once I read through my notes before the podcast, and I saw a quote from the book, actually, where he talks about classless society, so a society which is opposite to all what he has been talking about, and he tries to describe what such a society would look like and i thought that was well not a policy proposal but was something that actually was pretty interesting was pointing to probably a direction for change which we should maybe consider Uh, i can read the quote on that i mean it says you know the classless society would be one which both possessed and acted upon plural values, where we to evaluate people, not only according to their intelligence and their education, their occupation and their power, but according to their kindness or their courage, their imagination or sensitivity, their sympathy and generosity. There could be no classes, in which full meaning was at last given to the dignity of man. Every human being would then have equal opportunity not to rise up in the world in the light of any mathematical measure, but to develop his own special capacities for leading a rich life. So I thought this was probably, yeah, let's call it the policy proposal. It's a bit vague in its formulation, but I think it points to the direction of, you know, uh, human dignity back at the centre of a society and economic development as well.
2: Because the book mixes up a sort of historical analysis and, and sort of, I suppose, facts from events leading up to post war Britain, it's sometimes quite difficult when he mixes that with like an imagined future and it's hard to tell where the, where the history ends, where the satire begins, what's real, what's he endorsing, what's he rejecting. But actually, in hindsight, I think that's one of the book's strengths because it presents um, a big challenge to you as the reader um, and puts the onus on you to um, challenge yourself sort of in opposition to what, what you're reading or where you agree with it. Perhaps you find that then there's an unintended consequence to something that you're thinking, yeah, that sounds like a great idea. Oh, I'm being challenged again. So I think it's quite, it's quite a good sort of Mental exercise to go through when you're reading it. It's very thought-provoking. I managed to track down a copy of the book where it had a forward that he'd written um, several decades after. Because people had said to him, um, we're not sure if this book's a satire, and we're not sure where you stand on the, on the spectrum. And um, he said it's really not that simple. Um, you know, he does flip between being against and being for a meritocracy. He contrasts two views throughout the book. Um, and he described it as the author having a shadow, and I quite like that metaphor.
0: Okay, thanks both. Um, so some really interesting discussions had so far. Um, after all those discussions, would you recommend somebody read this book?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I would absolutely recommend it. I think it triggers a lot of self-reflection and a lot of uh, opens a lot of new questions. Actually, so I find it super interesting and probably useful for anyone, not only someone who works on specific issues of, I don't know, education or inequality, but also to anyone because meritocracy meritocracy is a concept that is there in our daily lives that we have to face since we are very young and that we might as well start rethinking of.
2: It's possibly not the easiest read. I found it quite, almost at times, quite a chore to read it. But um, in reflection, I'm glad I did read it. I think um, it really got me thinking. It raised a lot of questions. I quite like the fact that it's it doesn't offer up answers. It's very rich. There's lots of them- thematic areas and threads to draw on. So whatever aspect of inequality uh, you're interested in, I think you'll find something of value in there.
0: Yeah, read it. <laughs> <laughs> Great. Thanks both. Thanks for making the time to speak to us today, and thank you to all our listeners for taking the time to listen today. Keep following the Oxfam podcast for more shows just like this, and to find out the latest thought from Oxfam staff and our partners, check out the details for our website on this page.